Amen. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 14. Uh, We are getting near the end of the book of Mark. It's been a long journey. It's been a fun journey. And all through it, it starts out at the very beginning saying, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the good news of Jesus, that our King, he has come, and that everything about our life now changes because of that. That he came to teach us a better way to live. That he came to show us what the kingdom of God looks like. He came to save us from our sins. He came to give us life and to pour out freedom and his blessings over us. Our life is different, completely, radically different because of the fact that Jesus has come. And now as we're reaching the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, we begin to see a few things as it's all drawing to a close now. And we're beginning to see some of the key things that we're going to have to remember if, like the disciples, we want to be able to continue to live a life of faith and following after Jesus. And it starts uh, right in verse 1. Of chapter 14, it says, It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, and I just love that every time, I'm like, do I have to be remembered as Simon the leper? Like, I got over it. I got better. Can you just call me Simon? But everybody's going to know me as Simon the leper. As he was reclining at a table, a woman came to him with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing for me, for you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he saw an opportunity to betray him. Now, right in this passage, we see two very different responses to Jesus. And this is what always boggled my mind, is I remember when I was a kid, I was growing up in, you know, in a mainline denominational church, and my parents were telling me about Jesus, I was in Sunday school, all of that stuff, learning Bible, um, but never having an encounter with Jesus. And so I was doing the best I could to follow after Jesus and live the life that I knew Jesus wanted me to live, but I was doing it absent a love that would compel my heart to want to follow after him. It was just willpower of, oh, I want to do all these really bad things, but, you know, Jesus is watching, so I better be good. I know I should be good. And, you know, that that doesn't work out real well, if you haven't figured that out yet. That does not work out well following Jesus if you don't have a love in your heart for him. And then I remember the day where Jesus showed up. And it went from being reading about someone in a book to meeting someone. 
It went from willpower of trying to follow after him to I love you so much, I want to follow after you. I don't want to do anything that would hurt this relationship. I don't want to do anything that would fall short of the call that you have over my life. You've created me to be more. You've created me to do better. Jesus, I want to follow after you with everything that I am. And it was all in response to an encounter that I had with Jesus. An encounter with Jesus will do more for you and will do things that only an encounter with, you, with God can do, that just reading the Bible, just learning the verses, whatever, can't do. Our, our following after Jesus was always supposed to be built out of a loving relationship with him. That's always the motivation. That's the foundation that we build our life on, is a loving relationship with Jesus because he's revealed himself and his goodness to you. Therefore, your heart just naturally wants to follow after him. So what I started doing was doing everything I could with my life to help create environments where people could encounter Jesus. Because if encountering Jesus did that in my life, it will do the same in everybody else's life. So everything I did in worship, in teaching, uh, in greeting people, in coffee shop encounters, I was always just trying to say, how can I become a vessel that hosts the presence of God and creates places where people can taste and see the goodness of God so that their lives can be transformed by a love that's born inside of them? Now, 16 years of doing that, I learned something that I didn't even think was possible. Is that you can have an encounter with the presence of God, you can have an encounter with his goodness, and you can hate Jesus. That's what's happening here. The disciples, the scribes, the Pharisees, they're encountering Jesus in the flesh. It's not, well, I don't know if I believe in a God. Is there any proof? Like, this is Jesus. He's right here. You can smell him. You can see him. You can hear him. You can taste him if you were really weird. Like, you can use every one of your senses to discern that Jesus is here. His goodness is here. His presence, his power, it's all here. I just saw someone do a licking motion. That was really weird. (laughs) Jesus was there in the flesh. And people hated him and wanted to kill him. You see, it's not just encountering God that's enough. This is what I've learned. You will never follow after Jesus if you don't have an encounter with him. But just encountering his presence isn't enough. You can hate him when you encounter him. That happens all the time. There will be a service where like, God's presence is so strong and it's so powerful. And people are weeping just because of the goodness of God and he's moving on their hearts and he's freeing people and healing people. They're just doing stuff that only God can do. And there will be someone that's sitting there like, is the game on? Huh. I like that picture. Huh. Is this over? Oh my gosh, we just started. When will he shut up? Like people will completely be in the presence of God and miss out on his goodness and not want to live a life of following after him. Because it's not just encountering Jesus that does something inside of us. It's the starting point. But Jesus also demands something of us. This is the difference between the woman who loved Jesus and worshipped him and the scribes and the Pharisees who hated him and wanted to kill him. Is that when, this, when the Pharisees and the scribes came into the presence of Jesus, they hated him because Jesus demands that you worship him. Jesus comes and he says, I'm the king I am God. I've come to save you. I've come to set you free. It's all my doing. It's not based on you. It's because of my great love and my affection for you that I've come to you to dwell with you, to be your God, and for you to be my people. But I am king. I am God. And so therefore, I demand it's right for you to worship me. This woman, when she encountered Jesus, she chose to worship. 
She chose to submit herself. And that, that word worship means to ascribe value and worth to something. That's why it's worship. It's worth-ship. He has worth. And what this woman did was when she encountered Jesus, she said, you are king. You're God. There's no one who's like you. And so I'm willing to dethrone myself. I'm willing to change reality. I'm willing to change truth. I'm going to follow after you, Jesus. Everything I am, everything I have, you're worthy of all of it. Versus the scribes and the Pharisees, when they encountered Jesus, who demanded that they bend the knee to him and begin to worship him as God, they said, no, I kind of like being God. I want to continue to determine what's right. I want to determine what's wrong. I want to be able to have my own traditions that I'm going to make that everybody else is going to have to follow after. I want to be able to continue to resist all of the things that you call me to, Jesus, because I want to be the God of my own life. I want to worship myself. And this is what we all do. If you've ever had kids, you know, like, what do kids do? Kids love kids. They love themselves more than anybody, and they can't understand how the world doesn't revolve around them and how every other kid in the world isn't their play tool and how every toy that every other kid has isn't theirs. Like, why would I ever have to share anything? The whole world is here for my amusement and for my enjoyment. That's how every single one of us is born. And so Jesus comes to us and says, actually, the world revolves around me, not you. I'm God. You're not. I'm the king. You're not. I've adopted you and I've made you a son. I've made you a daughter. I've poured out undue and lavish love upon you and blessings upon you that can't be contained. But you have to bend the knee. When we see God's goodness, when we see how faithful he is, it puts us in the place of where we can trust him. And we can say, all right, Jesus, I might not understand everything, but I'll bend my knee to you. I'm going to elevate you. I'm not going to be God. I'm not going to be Lord of my own life anymore. I'm going to follow after you, Jesus. And I know I can trust myself to you because I've seen how good you are. I've seen how much you love me. You're only going to lead me into goodness. You're only going to lead me into prospering. You're only going to lead me into blessing. When we do that, we worship Jesus. We ascribe value to him. But the natural inclination of our hearts, what was happening in the scribes and with the Pharisees and with Judas, is saying, no, I want to stay in charge. I want to keep determining what, re what reality is. I want to keep determining truth. I want to continue to put myself on the highest seat of authority. I want to continue to make my life about serving me and seeing the world as I want it to be seen instead of bending my knee to King Jesus. See, the reality is when you have your encounter with Jesus, you'll have one of two responses. You either love him and worship him because of his goodness or you'll hate him because he's a threat to you. The natural thing for us to do is to hate him. But by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can worship him. We can dethrone ourselves, and we can put ourselves in the position of where we say, Jesus, I love you, and from this day forward, my life is about loving you. Jesus, I'm going to worship you. I'm going to say there's no one else who's like you. I'm going to put you on the throne in my life, the highest seat of authority. Jesus, all power, all honor, all glory, it's all yours. And I will live as a loyal son, as a loyal daughter. I will live as a subject of your kingdom. But Jesus, I'm not like you. You're altogether different. You're holy. Jesus, thank you that you would even love me. Thank you that you'd even adopt me into your family. And Jesus, from this day forward, my whole life is about worshiping you. And when this woman worshiped Jesus in this way, some, it, it became a model for all of us. 
It says that Jesus sees it and it touches his heart so much the way that she worships him that he says that this is going to be the example that all people for all of time, wherever the gospel is preached, this example of this woman and her love and the way that she worshiped Jesus would be the example for all of us. And so this morning, if we want to be those who follow after Jesus and we want to spend our lives worshiping him, ascribing value and worth to him and saying that Jesus, you're above all else, the thing that we need isn't more teaching. What we really need is more worship. What we need is more revelation of who God is and how we continue to submit ourselves to him. And this woman becomes that example of the worship that touches the heart of God. And so the first thing about it is worship that touches the heart of Jesus is costly. She takes this alabaster flask that's filled with nard, which was very expensive. It says it was about 300 denarii, which meant there was about one year's wages, which in our city would be about $75,000. And putting it in our, our, in our language, that this woman came to him and gave him a $75,000 gift. That's costly. This gift that she gave Jesus was a family heirloom. It would have been passed down to her. It was very hard to get this. It, was, it came from a plant in India. They're in Judea, so that's a lot of shipping cost. Uh, it's just very expensive because it was hard to produce. So families would gather it, and they'd buy it whenever they could, and oftentimes uh, it would be used for weddings. So when you got married, you would you'd perfume your bed sheets with this nard because it's such a beautiful, sweet-smelling thing. You'd use it when you had uh, dignitaries over important people. You would show them honor by putting this beautifully scented uh, ointment around your house. And then you would collect up as much as you could and it became what you would pass on to the oldest daughter in the family. So this woman has this gift that was given to her by her mother, maybe from the grandmother, great-grandmother. Who knows how long this family's been saving up the $75,000 worth of nard. And when she encounters Jesus, she sees that he's so worthy, that he's so valuable, that she takes the best, the most expensive thing that she has, and she comes and she gives it to him as a gift to express the value. Jesus, you have so much value. Jesus, you're worth so much to me that I'm going to give you the very best, the most costly thing that I have. And that touched Jesus' heart. Oh, the same for all of us. I remember when I was uh, getting engaged and I was shopping for a ring. And what I did was I looked at my bank account and I saw how much money I had. And then I went and saw what I could turn it into, just this little itty-bitty tiny rock that comes out of the ground and this little white gold band. And so I turned all of my dollars from all of the hours I had been working into this And then I had to ask Anna's dad if I could ask her to marry me, and that was really awkward and hard, too. He said yes, eventually. And then, you know, I had to give her this ring. It was, that was all my money. You know, I was a young guy, so I didn't have a lot, but everything I had, I went into buying this for Anna. Now, was it because I valued the ring? No, like, I don't care. When I got my band, I said, I want literally the cheapest thing that you can find. Just white gold, no decorations, no bling, nothing. Like, it's a waste of money to me. I don't value it. I didn't value the ring that I got for her, but I valued her. I valued the relationship, and so I put everything that I had to give her what for me was a very costly gift. And what costly is, is on a sliding scale, uh, so if, if you're, you know, you're a college kid and you got no money and you want to get married, you go out and you buy yourself a cubic zirconium thing on some sort of a tin band and it costs you everything you have, it might not look like much in the eyes of the world, but it is a costly gift that you are giving to the woman that you hope will say yes. Now, 
If you're pulling in six figures and you pull that stunt with cubic zirconium and a tin band, you're about to be single. Because what you're communicating to her is that you don't value her, that she's not worth that much to you. You're giving her something that is cheap, which will make her feel cheap. You're giving her something that's not valuable, which will make her feel unvalued. It's the same with Jesus. You might not have a lot of something, but when you go all in, you say, Jesus, all I have in my singing voice is the equivalent of cubic zirconium on a twisty tie. That is it. There is nobody in this world that will look at my voice and say, that is beautiful. That is a precious gift that you give Jesus. But when you give that horrible voice that you were given like a baby bird squawking for a worm, it sounds good to Jesus. Because you went all in. You gave him a costly gift. It was costly because everybody was going to turn and look at you like, oh my gosh. I'm doing this for Jesus, not you people. You might not have a lot of money. I remember when we were buying this building, we had college students. That's college student gave two grand. It was what she'd been saving up for, for the next semester. And she went all in. Now, there was people that gave a lot more than that. Costly is a sliding scale. That was a beautiful gift that she gave Jesus. We've had homeless people that had come in. They'd given three bucks. That's a beautiful gift when all you have is three dollars. People are giving of their time to serve Jesus. People are giving of their energy. What's important is that it's costly. Because if we give something to Jesus that is cheap, it communicates to him that he's cheap. If we give him something that is invaluable to us by, based on what we have, then we can communicate to him that he's not valuable to us. But when we go in like the widow with the two little copper coins that we learned about a couple weeks ago, she went all in and it touched the heart of Jesus because it communicates to him how much you love him and how much you value him. When you bend the knee to surrender your life to Jesus, that is such a precious gift that you give him because it's giving him everything. Jesus, I'm not going to control my life anymore. I'm going to be about following after you. You're going to be the Lord of my life. That's the most costly gift that you could ever give. And it's precious and it's beautiful to him. When we worship Jesus, it always has to be costly if we want to touch his heart. And the second thing is that it has to be expressive. A love that isn't expressed isn't really love. I think Michael W. Smith wrote a song about that when I was a kid is that love always has to be expressed. If, you know, obviously Anna accepted my ring and we're married, we've been married 13 years now, but if I had only just given her this expensive gift but then didn't do anything expressive in our relationship, how many of you know that relationship would not have lasted 13 years? It's not just, okay, Jesus, I love you, I want to follow after you, now like, leave me alone and pretend you don't know me and I'll pretend like I don't know you for the rest of my life. This woman, when she came in, she barges into a dinner party that is going on and she comes up to Jesus, breaks a jar, and dumps oil all over his head. That's expressive. That is really expressive. That's extremely expressive worship. I have to express love to my wife through things like uh, my time. I said, I love you. Baby, I love you so much. Hey, you want to go on a date? No, not really. I mean, like, I love you, but not like I want to hang out with you. You know, like, I want to love you from over here, and you do your thing over there, and like we'll see each other in heaven. It'll be good. And no, that's not love. When you love someone, you have to spend time with them. It has to be expressed through time. When you love Jesus, you have to express it through spending time with Jesus. Uh, when it comes to serving, if I said I loved my wife, but I didn't express it through serving her, 
then I probably wouldn't really love her. If she asked me to do something, hey, could you do the dishes? I'm, I'm like, all this stuff's going on and this piling up. And all this, I was like, no, no, you know what? I got like 12 hours of football to watch today. And, uh, and then tomorrow's my day off, so I just kind of want to relax and just zone out for a while. But I'm sure you can catch up with some of the housework at some point. It'll be good. No, like I have to serve my wife. If I don't serve her, she's going to feel unbelievably unloved and unvalued. She'll see that I'm serving football and the couch more than I'm serving her, which means that really I worship football and the couch and ice cream more than her. When it comes to, to physically, if she came up to me and put her arm around me in public, I'm like, oh, gosh, like, what are you doing? Don't touch me. Like, yeah. ah. How loved is she going to feel? Not loved at all. So if we're like, you know, I worship Jesus, but I just do it all up here. Not too much like, well, Jesus says like he wants us to raise hands when we worship. Nah. Well, it says here we should clap when we worship. Nah, I don't really like that either. Well, it says that we should worship Jesus by getting on our knees. No. It says that we should worship Jesus with singing his praises. Ah. Isn't there something else? I, I just love him up here. I'm making a really joyful melody in my heart, Jesus. No, it has to be expressed. There has to be some physical expression of the love that we have for Jesus if we want to be able to touch his heart with our worship. Now, I know that, like I was talking to someone about this this morning, uh, our, our culture has been shaped by the Romans and Plato, and their whole idea was that all emotion and expression of it is horrible and it's a sign of weakness. We believe that in so many cultures, and it's not true. It's not biblical. It's not, it's not wise to just swallow all of your emotions. Swallowing your emotions doesn't make you look more mature or smarter. It gives you an ulcer. Like, that's what swallowing all of your emotions will do. Our worship should be physically expressive. That's the way that the kingdom culture is when we see what worship's going to be like in heaven. It's what God's called us to here. And it might be uncomfortable. You start out with the arm raised like, ah, you do that kind of thing. Or like the, the lifting, the heavy weight, doing the preacher curl worship. But it's a start. Maybe it's a start with just vocalizing your worship. Because how many of you know if, if I got married and said, I love my wife, but I never say anything nice. I know over any adoring, no encouraging words, nothing. Is this critical? Or asking her for things, she's not going to feel loved. I'd say, you're beautiful. You're amazing. You're wonderful. I love you so much. I can't believe that you love me. Thank you for this. Thank you for that. Thank you. And just bringing just a constant heart of thanksgiving and gratitude towards her. That's going to touch your heart. That touches the heart of Jesus. In fact, in the temple, the way that it was built was you actually entered through a gate called the gate of thanksgiving. To even enter into the presence of God, you had to be reminded that I enter into his presence with thanksgiving. So as I enter the gates of thanksgiving with praises in my mouth. Jesus wants us to, with our words, with our songs, express our love and our adoration of him. Worship that touches the heart of God is expressive. And worship that touches the heart of God is scolded. When you worship God in a costly and an expressive way, there's going to be other people who are going to sit around here and look at you and be like, what do they think they're doing? Like, what is wrong with them? Are they having, what? Why are you doing this? And I know that because I used to be like that. Growing up in my mainline denominational church, we had one person that would raise their hands like every now and then in a worship song. I'd always see them and be like, so emotionally weak. Jesus, thank you for not making me like them. I really love you. Up here, I don't have to woo, do whatever you're doing. 
I got the word. And what I would do, I hated praise and worship time. I was like, this is taken away from the preaching. Like, even as a kid, I never wanted to be a preacher, but I just wanted to listen to it. So what I'd do is, this is an iPad, but I'd sneak my Bible in, like a little pocket New Testament. So I'd open up the hymnal during the, like, the worship time, and I would read. I'm like, haha, you can't trick me into worshiping Jesus with emotionally weak songs. I'm going to make better use of my time. I'm going to learn. How many of you know our issue in church today isn't that we don't have enough knowledge? We have more information than any generation has ever had. We lack worship. We, all of this knowledge is supposed to lead us to the place of worshiping Jesus, of seeing how beautiful and how good he is, how worthy he is of our praise and our adoration in everything that we have. But instead we're like, eh, I'm just going to look for six more keys to breaking strongholds for victory in the spirit. Like, Maybe that will come as you surrender yourself to the king who has the power to do that. We need to learn to worship more. But when you worship, you're going to get scolded just like I did when I was 16 to everybody else. This is what they do. I love it too because they, they try to make it sound good. Really, they're just being critical jerks. And the people who are criticizing others for worship, you know what they're not doing? Is worshiping Jesus. And so they say, you know what she should have done? I love this. It's not, what, what do I need to do or what can I learn from this? It's, you know what she needs to do? Let me tell you. It's like every guy at a bar, you get a couple of them, let me tell you what you need to do. <laughs> you shouldn't listen to them and you shouldn't listen to these people either. You know, that's $75,000. You should have sold that and given the money to the poor. If you notice, they didn't say, hey, maybe we should go home and sell our stuff and give it to the poor. You should give stuff to the poor. Everybody is super generous with other people's stuff. But everybody's so tight with things. Oh, it's mine. You give your stuff away. I'm keeping my stuff. You give your stuff away. This is what Jesus says. You know what? What this woman is doing is not keeping you from giving to the poor. If it's really on your heart that you need to give to the poor, then by all means, go and give to the poor. You can still do that if someone else is expressively worshiping. It's like, oh, well, I was going to give to the poor, but this woman was dancing around in the front row, so no, I can't give. You can still give to the poor. I hear this all the time from people that don't go to church. Like, like yeah, I know, I follow Jesus. I love Jesus. This is what I say. I love Jesus. But, you know, there's, there's just no church out there anywhere in the world. And so I have to stay home so I'm not contaminated. I'm like, all right. And this is what they do. Usually they end up making a Jesus that they love that is just an idealized version of themselves with a beard and sandals and not actually Jesus. And then when they encounter Jesus, they actually hate him or they will tear down the, you know, whatever's happening and whatever people are doing. If you worship Jesus, you're going to get scolded by other people. They're going to tell you what you should do. All these churches building all these buildings, they should have just given all the money to the poor. I hear that one a lot. Like When we were meeting in a movie theater, everybody complained about the fact we were meeting in a movie theater and then we got a building everybody complained about the fact that we have a building. Like That's just the way... That, that it goes, right? Because everybody's a critic and everybody wants to scold you whenever you try to do something great to worship Jesus and create a place where people can encounter him. But Jesus says, no, this woman's touched my heart. If she wasn't doing it for you. If she was doing it for you, then you'd have a right to criticize it. She was doing it for me. So you don't have any say in this matter. People are going to scold you when you start giving costly gifts. People are going to start scolding you when you start valuing Jesus above everything else. And this is really what this woman did. This is what she got. It wasn't that she devalued the poor. That's not what this is about. This isn't saying, hey, don't give anything to poor people. Give to the poor. 
Because every single person has value and worth because we're all created in the image of God. Every single one of us. But what this woman figured out is that Jesus is worth more than any person. See, worship that touches the heart of Jesus elevates the worth of Jesus above all else. Above everything else. Jesus, you're better. I hate poverty. I hate homelessness. I hate marriages that are falling apart. I hate abuse. I hate racism. I hate bigotry. I, I mean, there's so many things in this world that I hate because they don't line up with the kingdom of God. And so a part of the way that I worship Jesus is by, by going out and being hands and feet and bringing the glorious light of Jesus to the dark places of this world. But here's what happens. Is so many times we will begin to put all of our focus on all of these things instead of keeping our focus on Jesus. All of the things will take more of our time, more of our, more of our money, more of our uh, emotions, more of our strength, all of these things. And what happens is we start taking our focus off of Jesus and we start putting our focus solely on these problems. And when you put all of your attention and all of your time on poverty and it becomes a great cause of your life, you've taken your eyes off of Jesus. When it becomes, uh, you know, abuse, and abuse needs to be dealt with, and the church has the ability to speak prophetically to a culture that has accepted abuse. We need to be a voice to it, but we can never put all of our focus on abuse. It has to remain on Jesus, because when we put all of our focus on divorce, divorce becomes what you worship. When you put all of your focus on abuse, abuse becomes what you worship. When you put it all on whatever it is, that becomes what you worship, and those all make terrible, terrible gods. Jesus is the one that we worship. Only Jesus, all of our love, all of our devotion, it's for him and for him alone. And because of that, now we go out and we address things like poverty and racism and abuse and divorce and sexuality and everything else. But it's all empowered and it's all through the gifting of the Holy Spirit inside of us. But if we disconnect ourselves from the king who empowers us and gives us the ability to persevere in these areas and pours out his blessings so that we can prophetically be a voice to our culture, then we lose our ability to be connected with God and we lose our ability to actually address the issue. So you can say, hey, we, we shouldn't, why do we need church buildings? Why should we give to Jesus? Why should we have sound systems or lights? We should just give all this money for divorce or fighting abuse or fighting mosquitoes or whatever. That sounds like a good one, actually. <laughs> That's my new cause. There'll be no mosquitoes in heaven. But Jesus isn't the one we worship anymore at that point. It's like this. How many of you guys, you have some friends, or maybe it's even happened to you, is you, you get married, and the marriage is about the two of you coming together. It's about the love that you have. And then you have kids. And kids are awesome blessings. And God has called you to put time and attention into them and to raise them and to train them. You're called to pour out into them. But the marriage always has to remain first. When you start loving your kids more than you love your spouse, you're going to lose the foundation that you have to raise godly children. You're going to set yourself back. Now, Jesus can still do something. I know there's a lot of people from broken families, divorce, single parents, all of that. Jesus can still miraculously enter into the equation. But the way that God designed it and the way that it's going to be easiest for you 
as a man and a woman in a covenant relationship who love each other first and foremost in the terms of human relationships and then love their children after that. And it's out of that strength of the marriage that they have that they're able to minister to their children and to raise godly children. And when the children are gone, they still have the relationship. That's the model that we have. We're married to Jesus. He's the one that we love first and foremost. We might have these other things that God's called us to address in our society, and we do love and we do pour ourselves out. We are called to that, but it never takes or replaces the love and the focus that we have on Jesus and Jesus alone. Because without that relationship with Jesus, without that worship that we live in a constant state of, we lose our ability to do what it is that he's called us to do in every other area of our culture and society. Jesus is worth more. Jesus is more valuable. And then Jesus demonstrates just how worthy he is. In verse 22 it says, And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take this, my body. And then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. Why is Jesus so worthy of costly, expressive worship that will be ridiculed by other people that don't understand? Why is he so worthy? Number one, because he's God. It's who he is automatically makes him worthy. Number two, because of what he's done for us. When they're celebrating the Passover, which the Jewish people were commanded to do, it was remembering of how God miraculously delivered them from slavery and from the bondage of Egypt. They couldn't do it for themselves. They were living as slaves. They were oppressed, they were abused, and there was nothing that they could do about it. But God came, and through miraculous signs and wonders, God freed them, and he was provisioned for them. When the angel of death came in the last plague, they put the blood of the lamb over their doorpost, and they ate unleavened bread. And the angel passed over, and God told them to always remember that. So here they are celebrating it, and Jesus takes the bread and he breaks it and he hands it out to his disciples and says, this is my body, broken for you. They don't understand what's happening yet. And he takes the cup. And a cup is always a sign of two things. It's a symbol of, number one, God's judgment. It was pouring out God's judgment on the nations or on a ruler. It was his wrath that was poured out. But it was also a symbol of blessing the cup of God's blessing that was poured out. And Jesus takes this cup of judgment, this cup of blessing. He says, this is my blood, referring to the wine in it. It's poured out for you, for the atoning of your sins. This is the blood of a new covenant that I'm making with humanity. Disciples didn't understand what that all meant until they saw Jesus on the cross. And then they got it. So Jesus became the Passover lamb. Whose body was broken. Whose life was given. Whose blood was put over the doorposts so that God's judgment would pass over. 
worship Jesus. Because he did that for us. And we didn't deserve it. When we were living as his enemies, when we were rejecting him, when we were rebelling against him, when we were just entrenched in the bondage of slavery. And this is a picture of you don't just need to be freed from societal slavery. You need to be freed from a spiritual slavery because even though the Hebrew people were freed from the institution of slavery and led into a good place to live, they still had the bondage of sin that was over them that was causing them to live in destruction of their own doing and of their own leading. Jesus came to break that. Jesus came to pour out his blood. You know that, that symbol of the cup, God's judgment, God's judgment was poured out on Jesus. It should have been poured out on us, but the judgment for our sins was poured out on Jesus. He bore it fully in himself. He became our perfect atoning sacrifice. And so that now the cup of God's blessing can be poured out over every one of us, a people who don't deserve it. But now God's blessing is poured out over every one of us. It should have been poured out over Jesus. He got the judgment and we got the blessing. Because he loves us that much. And that's why we can bend our knee. That's why we can worship Jesus in a way that's costly. It's why we can worship Jesus in a way that's everything about us. We're all in for following after him. We found nothing more valuable, found nothing that's more worthy than him because he went to the cross for us. He saved us from sin. He saved us from hell. He saved us from a life apart from him. He saved us from everything that was the enemy of our soul. And he poured out the blessings of heaven over us. And now we can know him. We can know our Father. We can walk with his blessings. We can walk with a contentment. We can walk with joy and peace and hope. We can walk with a prospering over everything we do because of the fact that Jesus went to the cross and took God's judgment for us so that we could receive blessing. All because of his love for us. That's why we worship him. That's why we so willingly bend the knee and say, Jesus, from this day forward, I'm following after you. Thank you for saving me from my sin. Thank you, Jesus. You're God, you're king, and even more than that, you're the one who's captured my heart. So I'll worship you, Jesus. I want to worship Jesus in a way that touches his heart. I want to worship him in a way that's costly and that's expressive and other people can ridicule it and that's okay, but I've discovered the truth and it's that Jesus is worth more. You stand with me this morning. This morning, maybe you've been encountering Jesus. He's come to you this morning. He's begun to speak to your heart. Maybe he showed you that you have a decision to make today. Will you worship him or will you hate him? I implore you to love him and to worship him. Because he's just so worth it. Maybe today you've never made that decision to bend the knee as your act of worship. You've never put your faith in him for the forgiveness of your sins. You've never put your faith in him to be the Lord of your life who will lead you. Today's that day. 
Today's that day to make that decision. Maybe you've been living a life and you've got distracted and you started worshiping other things. Your focus, your attention has been on something else. It's been taken off Jesus and you've drifted away and now there's distance between you and God. This morning he's calling you to draw near once again. Just draw near. Refocus. Repent of the sin. Refocus on Jesus and on Jesus alone. Find him to be worthy. Find him to be beautiful. Find him to be good this morning because of what he's done for you. Jesus, this morning we declare as a church that you are worthy, that there's no one who's like you. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you, Jesus, that your body was broken for us. Thank you that your blood was shed for us. God, thank you for for your blessing been poured out over us and we didn't deserve it, but you're just that good. Jesus, we love you. We recommit to you. Make us a worshiping people this morning. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. The ushers are going to pass out the elements of communion. There's going to be a stack, two cups stacked on top of each other. And just hold on to those and then we're going to worship a little bit and then we'll take it together. Uh, as I say, we practice open communion here. If you've made Jesus the Lord of your life and you're following after him, by all means, join communion with us. But if you haven't decided to follow after Jesus, uh, just let it pass on by you. Nobody's going to look weird at you or, or make you feel bad about it. But we just believe it's something that the church family does. It's for the people that follow after him to remember what it is that he's done for us. So they'll pass it out, hold on to it, and we'll take communion together in just a little bit.
we remember that Jesus' body was broken so that ours could be made whole. As we take the bread together, we remember the broken body of Jesus. And on the cross, Jesus' blood was shed for us to atone for our sins, completely removing them, containing the power to break every bondage over every area of our life. How powerful the blood of Jesus. As we drink, we remember the blood of Jesus. You guys want to do something with me? Spend just another moment more singing through that chorus. Let's give Jesus a gift this morning because he's worthy of it. As we sing this, you're worthy of it all, would you do it with a renewed passion inside of your heart because of what Jesus has done? Maybe you've never sung before in a church, but would you be so bold, say, Jesus, you're so worthy that I'll give you the costly gift of looking foolish in front of other people or sounding terrible, but Jesus, this is all for you. Every tongue adoring Jesus, declaring his worth and his value. So maybe you've never raised a hand before in church, be so bold just as to raise hands and saying, Jesus, you're God and you're worthy. I'll sing and I'll raise hands, I'll physically express my love to you. And even now, let's begin to thank God for something for what it is he's done in your life, thanking God for his love, thanking God for his blessings over you, beginning to give voice to it as a way that we're worshiping Jesus. Jesus, thank you for your goodness and your love over us. Just begin to thank Jesus. Maybe you don't have much, but you can thank him for him. You can thank him for his love, how he's always been faithful, how he's never let you down. He's walked with you through every dark area of your life. You can thank him for the hope that we have in his returning. You can thank him for the hope that we have in the full restoration of all of creation, a new heaven and a new earth. You can thank him that every enemy will bow. Whatever enemy you're facing right now, he has power and authority over it. Jesus, we thank you for that. Let's begin to thank and begin to praise him, raising holy hands. Jesus, you're so good. You're so worth it. place this morning. We give it to you.
Let's give an applause to our God who's worthy of it all and who's glorious. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for revealing yourself to us and calling us to worship you. I'm going to have my prayer partners come forward. If there's anything we can pray with you about or encourage you in, or if you've made a decision to follow Jesus or, or draw back close to him today, come let us encourage you, pray for you. It's so important that someone knows. You signed up to, to host a group. If you want to do that, you signed up for the six-year anniversary. It's going to be a lot of fun. Spend this week worshiping Jesus. It's going to be awesome. Next week, we're taking a little break from the book of Mark. Uh, we're doing a marriage series, but we're not going to do it like you normally do. We're going to do one a month, like one teaching a month, and then like space in between. So we'll get back to Mark. Uh, but it's going to be good. It's going to be a completely different approach than I've ever taken to it before. And I think that you will be really encouraged. Uh, you know, if you're single, hey, you know married people, and you'll most likely be married at some point in the future, or uh, at least you'll gain a lot better understanding of the love that Jesus has for you. So I encourage you, be here next week, invite your friends. You know, like, hey, your marriage is terrible, come to church with me. We're not, don't do that. But just invite them, because it's going to be good next week. I'm really excited about it. So God bless, go drink some coffee, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>